Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to a new episode of Office Chats, a podcast presented by Madam Blue. My name is Mariah Thomas, and I'll be hosting today's segment. Every episode will have a special guest share their story of success, career advice, and industry insight. Today's guest is Marvin Revels, the creative director for 3NY, a women's clothing boutique in Soho, New York. Revels plays an integral role in creating a sales platform for European and Southeast Asian clothing designers at 3NY and 3NYConcept.com. In 2013, Revels became the buyer for 3NY, allowing him and his team to be as creative, risk-taking, and experimental as they wanted. 3NY has very forward-thinking personalities and creative art enthusiast customers, so Revels has the ability to create different experiences for them. During his tenure at 3NY, Revels secured franchise agreements for what would become the company's most successful retail brands, including Greedalist and Pushbutton. Marvin Revels' journey in the fashion industry began with him being 16 years old as a sales associate at The Gap at a local mall where he grew up. During lunch breaks at the mall, Revels would study the store windows of Gucci and Christian Lacroix, which sparked his interest in fashion, which he would later go on to study at university. Hi Marvin, how are you? I'm great, how are you? I'm great, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. So to get everything started, how was 3NY able to stay afloat during the pandemic? I think what sets us apart from other retail stores is that we're very unique in which the merchandise that we carry and that we curate. So I think that separates us um, as far as um, why people shop with us and still remember us after the pandemic when they were able to come out into the streets and, um, and shop at, at brick and mortar retailers. So I think there's still a demand for what we do. Mm, that's amazing that you guys have still been able to keep everything going, especially with how rough some businesses have been doing during this time. Were there any changes that had to be made in order to in order to deal? Yeah, I mean, there was a couple of things we had to do to adapt. I mean, be it that we're a brick and mortar store, um, a lot of stores had pre-COVID um, really advanced online. We had to kind of um, fast forward, um, if I can say, to that kind of online business. Um, we didn't really have that platform. We had, we're located in Soho, New York, which mostly 80% of our, our customer are tourists, international tourists. So we kind of lost that. So we had to kind of change our business model to an online platform. Um, so we're kind of making our way through that. Um, so we had to adjust in that way. Also, we use WeChat. Mm -hmm. um it's a broadcasting well wechat is a channel that chinese uh, um, americans and people from mainland china use to communicate pay there's so many different aspects of wechat but um we were introduced to a company a few years ago which did broadcasting um across to our chinese and international customer which really helped us um so that really kicked in for us for those customers that cannot make it into the store we were able to broadcast them live um, of our merchandise and we're able to send it to China um, and other parts of the world, wherever our Chinese American customers are. 
So those were like our two major factors where we had to kind of adjust and kind of like, um, should I say, um, accelerate. Um, we did WeChat before, but now we had to kind of ramp it up. We, we did like two events per month. Now we're doing about three to four events per month. So we had to kind of step that up so we can, as we get new merchandise, we can show our customers um, our product. Mm, okay. Now you mentioned using WeChat, which is something I've been using too personally, but it's amazing that you're using it, you know, as a platform for customers. But now I know there's going to be a ban on WeChat. So where do you see things going from there when WeChat is going to be banned? That's a great question. I mean, as we know it now, or I mean, we're taking it day by day, as we know it now, um, we still are not able, well, before the programming that we have, we do not pay through, um, the customer does not pay through WeChat. It's a, custom, it's a company that kind of acts as the middleman person that takes the payment. The, the purpose of WeChat is to get the customer base. So we have a lot of Chinese customers, which this company provides to us, and they introduce us to the store. They kind of take care of the money aspect of it. So as we know it now, WeChat still is able to communicate um, as far as via text, but as far as payments are concerned, people are not able to use that portion of it. Chinese company is still able to convert those monies and to kind of deliver the product. So thankfully, we still can use it. What role do you think the virtual online market is going to play in the future? Do you think this is something that's only going to expand? Or do you think the pandemic is only briefly making things really virtual? I, mean, I think it's going to expand. I mean, it, like you said, virtually on um, things like right now, we're in the midst of a lot of fashion week. So we just wrapped up New York Fashion Week. And I think the only person that I know was Rebecca Minkoff that did a runway show on the roof, um, which was kind of, um, well, she's always been forward in that way as far as doing outside shows. But um, as we adapt, a lot of like Burberry or say, for instance, um, uh, I don't know, Montclair or, Bur um, or I'm trying to think of another company, Area, they did all of their shows virtually. Also, that was happening at the same time was Hong Kong Center Stage Fashion Week. And I had to review footage because of the time difference at a different time, a few different shows. So um, that was virtually. And that was really interesting because I have such a short extension, I mean, um, attention span. So it's really hard for me to focus, especially in an office setting sometimes because I'm so hands-on. But I really enjoyed it. I actually adjusted to it and I was able to see the collection. I was able to even go back where I thought I missed something where you necessarily can't go back on the runway. You can look at the lookbook afterwards, but not in the moment. So some of the aspects of like something virtually is actually, um, I find it to be helpful. I'm hoping that be it with this virtual, I hope it still goes on, but I also hope we still get back to the hands-on, like where I can feel the fabrics and I can actually feel the product and be with the people. I think that's really important. Early this month, I attended this virtual discussion where the New York Times hosted a conversation with leading figures in the fashion industry on the global state of fashion. And one issue discussed was how some brands are trying to implement recent learnings on the Black Lives Matter movement. So as a Black man in the industry yourself, what are your thoughts on diversity in the industry? 
oh, you know, I've been in this industry so long, um, you know, and I've been a black man even longer. Think about the world and its totality and you say, wow, all these black people in the industry and all these black models and all these black this, that, all these um, successful black people, but then you get into these certain rooms and it's just white people. So, um, yeah, I mean, how do I think about black people or how do I think about the movement and how it coincides with the, with the fashion industry? I, I mean, it's, it, it definitely needs to be addressed because there's just so, many, so much talent out there, not just um, from a visual, visual an, um, aspect, but from a management aspect as well. I know you mentioned a lot of issues in terms of representation when you walk into higher positions. So what is your ideal representation of what diversity needs to look like? People need to look, the, the companies and the back end need to look just like what they represent and what they put out visually. I mean, there's kind of like so many false narratives out there. You'll see black models all over Gucci, but when you get into the higher management, you don't see those decision makers. So um, I think they need to start hiring black people. I mean, I think it's just as simple as that. I mean, there are millions of talented black people, black Americans, Asian Americans, just all the way around. But as we focus just on African Americans, we can do it. We are, we are, um, we are applicable. We are um, hard workers. I mean, we've proven ourselves times and times again. And um, that's what diversity looks like to me. And of course, that's going to only help companies to build more revenue. You know, as they expose that, you know, people want to feel good about shopping at places that are not against them um, and stop kind of like shutting people out. A lot of these brands they are, you know, they're coming out saying that they're aligned with the Black Lives Matter movement. They're coming out saying that they want to support the movement. They want to support their Black creatives. But do you believe that there's a lot of performative action that goes on in the industry? And what are some ways that you can pinpoint that performative action from true sincerity? Sometimes, you know, you go into these rooms of higher management and you say, wow, no Black people were applicable for the job. And that's just not true. So again, hire us, pay us what we're worth. Um, stop um, appropriating the, uh, the culture and, and actually appreciating the people and hire them. I, I mean, I think sometimes I think it's just as simple as that, you know, and pay us, pay us what we're worth. You're making millions of dollars off of our ideas, our culture, and then you give us scraps. I mean, I just don't, I don't even know how else to say it. You know, pay us. When you hire us, pay us. You know, uh, we need equal um, pay. You know, um, that's discriminatory as well. So, um, yeah, I think also you, you brought up a great point about people um, necessarily just riding the wave, as that's how I call it. You know, it's cool to be a part of the Black Lives Matter, but when it really matters, you still don't see them hiring people. And you still don't see, they don't stop necessarily the microaggressions. Again, there's so much systemic racism, if we can just even get past that. Because even when you're in positions of power, people have to know to respect you as well. So I think there's just so many aspects that build up to um, this whole thing, as we call racism. It's not just isolated to one thing, because even if the industry is fixed, we need to fix the restaurant industry. We need to fix 
we really need to fix this whole culture of how people view black people in America in particularly. Now, if you can, who are three black creatives in the industry or brands that you believe are black excellence doing great things right now? If you can name three and why. Um, June Ambrose. I mean, she's been out in the industry for so long. She's not a brand, but she is. She branded her own self. She's a customer of ours. We love her dearly. Um, she's Jay-Z stylist. Um, she's had so many accomplishments, uh, but she's been in the industry and she's been plugging hard. So I really admire her and I think she's doing amazing things um, for children, for black women. Um, as I think about it, I think about um, even some of the younger designers like um, Telfar. He's amazing. You know, I feel like he's really bringing out the culture and being himself. Like he's not necessarily hiding himself. Like he's really showing who he's not afraid to show who he is. And I, and I think it shows in his collection. Uh, amazing, most underrated designer right now, I feel, is Telfar, who is a black designer. And I can't go without saying Andre Leon Talley. I mean, he inspired us all. Um, again, I'm mentioning not some, I mentioned somebody old, somebody new, somebody in between. Andre Leon Talley has been out there for so long and been fighting for the black rights and such an icon. Um, and I admire him. So I think, yeah, they're changing the scope of how people, people see black people in higher positions um, in high fashion. So now, in the discussion, they mentioned how most sizing in the fashion industry is based on white bodies. So what does that mean to you? Do you believe that's true? I think it's a false narrative. Mm, okay. I don't believe that. Mm. I don't believe that. I believe they do make clothing for white or European cuts. I think there is such a thing. But I think sometimes when we feed into that narrative, it just kind of makes us seem like the other. And I just know that's not so. I, I just feel like it almost plays a narrative that we're not fit. When you talk about sizing, I think that's a, I can't, I can't feed into that narrative necessarily. There are very fit and very petite black people come in all shapes and sizes and Every size is not for everyone. I don't think it's a black issue. I mean, if anything, it's an American issue because we carry more Asian designers and even our white counterparts cannot fit those clothing. So, because um, Asians, uh, mostly Asian, Asian um, people, Korean, Chinese, they're, they're a lot smaller than Americans. So I think it's more of an American issue for us. Um, it's not necessarily a sizing issue. Um, but I can't fit into the narrative that size matters for African-Americans because there are Black people that are small. And um, I don't think sizing. I just think that they shut us out with the white space. I think that's more of an issue than a sizing issue. Great. Thank you so much for speaking with me, Marvin. No problem, Mariah. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. If you're ever in the city, make sure you check out 3NY and we hope you tune in for the next episode of Office Chats. 
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. 